would you trade for a day in the house of the Lord? What does Western Christianity trade for a day in the house of the Lord? I'll tell you what it trades. It trades boats and golf clubs and various shrines that it is set up. Only those whose appetite is right can actually say these words. Otherwise, we live with the hypocrisy of our own spirits. This weekend on the Songtime broadcast, we'll continue our Summer Psalm series. In this message from Alistair Begg, we'll talk about how to develop an appetite for worship as we consider the question, is worshiping God on Sunday truly better than a thousand days elsewhere? Stay tuned for that message, but first, we'll be joined by Christian apologist Neil Shenvey as we discuss whether or not we can answer the questions that young adults are asking. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. This weekend, our guest is Neil Shenvey. He's written a book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. And as many of our students go back to school, whether it's high school or college, we need to realize that they are asking questions that are being challenged in their faith in ways that we can hardly even imagine. Are we able to answer the question the world is asking? Are we able to provide those apologetic answers to our children, especially when it comes to a morally kind of uh, kind of wash, wishy-washy sort of culture that we're living in today? Well, Neil, this is a subject that you put a lot into with your book, and you deal with the moral argument that there, there needs to be a God in order for us to have a moral response to anything. There needs to be a standard for right and wrong. But living in a world where there doesn't seem to be a standard that is stable, it constantly sh- shifts from one side to the other side, uh, this seems like a very hard case to make with our the next generation that seems to make their moral claims based upon their feelings rather than facts. One of the things, I think I actually heard it a long time ago from Mark Dever, who's a pastor in um, Washington, D.C., but he said that we need to be confident that God's written his law on our hearts. Yeah. We all have consciences. We do. We, we suppress them. That's true. Paul says that too in Romans 1. But they're there. And so we don't have to say, well, man, what if people deny that morality exists? They will, they will do that. Of course they'll say, no, I don't believe in right and wrong, good and evil. These are all just social constructs. They'll say that with their mouths. But we know that's not true. We know that they encounter the same moral reality that all of us do because we're made in God's image. And so we have to start from that assumption, that truth, that no, those categories are really out there and we all encounter them. And that what they're doing, like all of us, is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And again, not just singling out atheists. We Human beings naturally do, all do that until we're converted. And so uh, so in the book, again, I respond intellectually to those objections, but I also point out that even the avowed moral relativist who will say, I don't believe in good and evil and right and wrong, their, their actual behavior does not reflect that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's an inconsistency when they, when they because you'll say, people will say, well, I don't believe in right and wrong and good and evil. Those are all social constructs. And this is a, this is bigotry. This is evil, wicked hatred. And how can you do that? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe I'm just living my truth as a bigot. <laughs> but so there, there, there are many cases I show them in the book where, where mm-hmm. you'll catch people uh, invoking moral categories even after denying them 
intellectually. And I'll mm. say, wait, what's going on? The answer is they're running into the same categories that all of us have as human beings made in God's image. And I actually quote from an atheist author named Steven Pinker. He's a Harvard psychologist, wrote a great book called The Blank Slate, where he, in his appendix, points out that categories of right and wrong and good and evil are human universals. Just from an anthropological perspective, all human cultures realize there is a moral law. Now, they differ as to what the content is, although there are wide agreement on things like you shouldn't rape, you shouldn't murder. But the point is, that's the human experience. We, we know there are things that are right and wrong. And we may not have room for that in our worldview, but that just means our worldview is wrong. And mm -hmm. as Christians, we should say, well, no, we have the right worldview, and it explains your experience properly. Mm. I've, I, I was growing up in the Christian church years ago, always hearing these warning signs. We're, we're going towards Sodom and Gomorrah. We're leading to this state where the, the world has completely rejected God. And I would just roll my eyes because, you know, I was, I would all admit now I was pretty naive back then uh, to see how truth had been undermined so much, even just decades ago, to now be in a place where the, the standard for truth is constantly being changed and uh, ripped out from underneath us, it's a lot harder to fight for those moral arguments and those truth claims when people are constantly being shifted on, on unsolid ground. And we really are living in a time where ultimately the, the devil's attack is to attack any foundation for truth. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I would say I think Christians can then be reactive and defensive and start, try to make the case that, no, no, really, really, some things are right and wrong. But I would just say, say Take a, take a deep breath and realize that they're at war with reality. That, that they, at a deep level, they know that these truths are there, these moral truths are there, and they're suppressing it, but it's, it takes, in some sense, effort on their part. They're, they're living in a way that's at variance with reality. I think Francis Schaeffer said that reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. Mm. And we're seeing more and more people bumping in hard into realities, and sooner or later, uh, they're going to well, hopefully they'll wake up and say, something's wrong with my worldview because this isn't making sense. And that's why I think Christians, even if in the moment when you present, say, the moral argument, you say there are certain things that are good and evil, right and wrong, they reject it, but you've hopefully put a stone in their shoe. And they're going to say when a year, two years, 10 years later, when something starts falling apart, they're like, maybe something, they'll go trace it back and say, maybe my problem was denying what I knew to be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I, I think that we should not, ha we don't have to be quite so defensive. We can say, I am standing confident in what is true and what God has revealed, and then operating and arguing from that position uh, that this is why we know, we actually already know that God exists, even though, again, our natural inclination to suppress that knowledge because why? Because we all know we're on the wrong side of God's law. <laughs> it's, if we were, if we thought we were awesome, I think we'd be totally willing to say, yeah, yeah, I, I, there is a moral law and I obey it. This is great. But because we're sinners, that's why we suppress the truth because we know we're on the wrong side of, of, of not of history of God's law. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's why um, we tend to, we, we, it's like the person is like the, uh, there's a funny story about a guy who's, you know, the engine light is on his car. Like the blinking is flashing red, blinking check engine, check engine. So he gets a piece of electrical tape and just tapes over it. Just, well, I can't see it anymore. Well, he is the problem gone away? No, but he has suppressed the problem because he can't yeah. see it. So we are doing that uh, as a culture and as individuals. We, we, we tape over the check engine light. It doesn't make it go, the problem go away, but it makes, us, it makes us bother us less until the car breaks down.
We've been talking with Neil Shenvey about his book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. It's very easy for us to get into this this frame of thinking that the world is in a perilous state and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But we are called to proclaim the truth in a world of crisis. We are called to be a, a light to the darkness and salt to the decaying world and a city that is set on a hill. So this book is a great resource, especially if you have students going back to school high school, middle school, or even college, you need to know the answers that they're asking, even if they're not vocalizing those questions. And uh, this book is a great resource. Find out more information by giving us a call 508-362-7070 or head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we're continuing our study in this Summer Psalm series, and this weekend we're looking at Psalm 84, a psalm of worship and praise and adoration of a great God and a great call to worship. And yet, for many of us, we can say the words, but the truth is, the reflection of our heart is that we don't long to worship God, at least not consistently. Do we look forward to gathering together and worshiping Him on Sunday with other believers, or is it difficult for us to get out of bed and make it to church, especially after the past couple of years that we've been through in isolation from each other? Well, in this message from Alistair Begg, we'll look at Psalm 84 and a call from the sons of Korah to gather together to worship our God because He is worthy of our praise. Verse 5 introduces us to the fact of the psalmist's dependence. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Well, you say tonight, well, that's not me. I am not capable in and of myself of standing up to the challenges that yet await me. I'm conscious tonight as I worship in the company of God's people, so conscious of my weakness. Well, I want to tell you tonight for your encouragement, that if that is the response of your heart, you should be greatly encouraged. Because as Paul, the mighty apostle, says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses." Are you aware of any weaknesses? Then when you're weak, then you may be strong. And so, under this heading, first of all, his dependence is revealed. Notice also, in the same verse 5, his devotion is displayed. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who depend upon you, and who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Now, we talk a lot in these days about mindsets, and we spoke a little this morning about heart sets. Jesus said where our heart was, where our treasure was, there would our heart be also. It might not be known to the people around us, but it is certainly known to the Lord. And if we're honest, it's known to us. It's that which is our preoccupation. It's that which takes the devotion of our time and our money and our effort. The psalmist says, listen, those who are truly in tune with God have their hearts set in a certain way. Not only do these people display a dependence, and display a devotion in the set of their heart, but they display a direction. You know, when we get a sense of pilgrimage, it makes everything different, doesn't it? Alas, it happens too seldom, it lingers too little, and we're back to our old tricks again until the Word comes and stirs us up and says, hey, where's your dependence? Hey, where's your devotion? And hey, what's your direction? Where are you going? 
Do your neighbors know you're on a different journey? Do your neighbors know you're heading somewhere different? Because they see the way in which you walk and they listen to how you talk. But the psalmist's dependence is revealed, his devotion is displayed, his direction is obvious, and the discovery that he makes is quite tremendous. Look at it in verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. In the journey of faith, along life as we run it, it's not all flowers and palm trees. There are times when we are painfully aware of the barrenness of that which we face. And yet, he says, the pilgrims make it a place of springs. Derek Kidner, it was in this arid valley that they dared to dig blessings out of hardships. And also, you'll notice in the second half of verse 6, it says, the autumn rains also cover it with pools. But notice that God may choose to send rain, a rain which comes from nobody's enterprise and which can bring a whole area to life. Notice verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Paul puts it, change from glory into glory, from one degree of glory to another till we see him face to face. The psalmist says they go from strength to strength. They display the reality of their spiritual hunger as they move in this direction. Now, finally, will you notice that the man or the woman with the healthy spiritual appetite also is to be found trusting in God's provision? Verse 10 and following. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What he's saying is this, that the quality of one day in the Lord's presence far outweighs the quantity of a thousand days spent elsewhere. Even the most favorable conditions that can be offered by the ungodly pale in the psalmist's mind into insignificance when compared with the joy of God's presence. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He goes on to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. God's poorest is better than the devil's best. That which seems most inconsequential in the service of God reaps more rewards than all that we might do in the service of he who is against him. These are the statements of a man whose appetite is right. I'd rather have one day in your court than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper than to enjoy all the apparent luxury of living in the tents of the wicked. What would you trade for a day in the house of the Lord? What does Western Christianity trade for a day in the house of the Lord? I'll tell you what it trades. It trades boats and trains and planes and golf clubs and various shrines that it has set up. And only those who've discovered the journey, only those whose appetite is right can actually say these words. Otherwise, we live with the hypocrisy of our own spirits. Verse 12, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in you. May I ask you tonight, do you trust in God? Do you really trust Him? 
Not just with the big things, but with the wee things as well. Not just with the things that we speak to others about, but the things that we won't speak to anyone about. Are we prepared to trust Him? And in our panic-stricken world, with a mad search to somehow make life life, to those who walk with Christ is given the opportunity, like sheep, to follow after the shepherd. The shepherd who calls us by name, who goes before us, and who desires the best for his flock. I'm prepared to trust that kind of person, aren't you? Will you? Psalm 84 is a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's important to read the inscriptions there to give us a lot of context. And Korah was one of the uh, Levites who opposed and actually organized a rebellion against Moses. And as a result, he was punished and sentenced to death. And his descendants were to be cut out from the tribe of Levi, uh, as would be normal for such a rebellion. But his children came to Moses. Moses repented and begged for forgiveness and asked for uh, their service to be continued in the temple. And they were granted the opportunity to serve on this one caveat that they could only serve at the lowest level. That means that they would become the janitors and the sextons of the temple and the tabernacle, that they would have to be the ones who cleaned up all of the, uh, the droppings of the animals that were coming to sacrifice, that they would have to clean up all of the ways in which there were uh, messes made in the temple, and they would be the ones who would have to clean up the blood, the stains that would be uh, made throughout the sacrificial period. Um, this was a pretty low role, and you can imagine it meant that they weren't able to be in positions of high esteem. They wouldn't be leading in the readings. They wouldn't be the ones making the sacrifices. They wouldn't be the high priest. And yet, in this psalm, they are crying out, how they long to be in the presence of God, worshiping in his holy place. Now, if they are able to get involved and to be passionate, and even so much to miss it when they're not able to do it, then why do we struggle to get involved when it comes to our church? Maybe, maybe, and I don't know every one of you, but maybe you should stop being a spectator and start being a servant. Instead of looking for the positions of high esteem, you should look for the lowest positions. These are all things that Jesus teaches us in the Gospels and what motivates us to see the significance and the importance of being a part of worshiping God. When you go to church on Sunday, it's not about you getting something from the church. It's about you bringing your witness and your worship and, and your sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. That is what is most important. And sometimes we overlook that component. We cannot stay away from the church. I've heard all of the arguments. And let me just tell you, there's nowhere in scripture that it even implies that it's okay to be a maverick Christian. We need the church and we need to be plugged in to a community of believers for the sake of discipleship, for the sake of evangelism. It's because our love for each other is what others see as the component that leads them to understand the love of God in their lives. We need the church and we need to be involved. So get off the bench, get plugged into the game. Maybe your opportunity is to serve in the church in some way and to long to see that one day in the presence of God is greater than a thousand 
elsewhere. I hope that this encourages you today. I hope so because it certainly encouraged me. Even as a pastor, I need to be reminded of this as well. So if it has been a blessing to you, could you return that blessing to us through your gifts and your giving? It's the only way that we can stay on the air. If you've been encouraged, consider being a partner with us through your financial contributions by writing to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. Or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Psalm 85, 4, and 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. <laughs>